sorry, somebody's asking me about anime. They're asking you about anime. Uh, yeah, we were talking about brand new animal. Oh yeah, I hear that's uh, I hear that less that's less horny than B stars. <sighs> Debatable. My name is Ringer. Uh, I'm Pat. And this is a podcast where we uh, do a live watch of the Air Bud franchise. Right. Uh, today's episode is the one that has raccoons in it, uh, which I don't know which one that is, but I'm yeah, heard that there's one with raccoons. There's a raccoon Air Bud. Who told you that? A raccoon. Uh, does Air Bud have a raccoon in it? I hope there's a... I'm feeling lucky search for this. I've got a raccoon movie reviews came up as a result. Oh, I guess <laughs> it's all Air Bud's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, and he also is reviewing uh, Air Bud's seventh inning fetch. Oh, okay. Which apparently has a trailer and the trailer is just a thumbnail of a raccoon. So, okay. Maybe I that's the one based on, based on all of this evidence, I have no reason to doubt you. Okay, good. I mean, ever. That should, that should establish my credibility from here on out, I think. So anyway, we have a topic. Do we? Or so I'm told. Yeah. I don't want to say this as though to blame you, but it was your suggestion. It was. To have this discussion. It was. So tell us about the topic of the day. Oh, man. Atherston. Well, it's, it's, almost, it's almost dated now because the conversations moved around so fast. But one of the questions... That is true. One of the questions that uh, furries had very quickly... As the uh, as the Black Lives Movement picked up pace uh, last month, uh, for all kinds of reasons, some very obvious reasons, furries kind of looked inward and they said, "Why do we not have uh, POC GOHs?" Which turned to a bigger discussion of why are there no POC staffers, uh, etc., and uh, why do uh, POC, which uh, later evolved, like within a week, it evolved to the term BIPOC, which is um, but that's uh, black indigenous people of color so it's a more of an inclusive term yep uh, that everyone had to ask for a moment what is that because it uh, it popularized I think this year oh it's been around I'm sure a very long time so uh, the question is all, all of that and now of course there's a BIPOC convention that's organizing in I believe Maryland correct that is a good question I th- I think you're right I know it's in the the Northeast it's very I know it's within the driving distance of a friend of mine in Maryland so it's it's up there and it's gonna be a I think a campground sort of outdoorsy sort of thing and they're planning for I think it's 2022 was to be was to be safe which makes sense I mean not not just because of the pandemic but also just with the amount of lead time it takes to start up a convention so I mean to go from zero to we have something in the works uh as quickly as they did is super impressive uh and yeah 2022 sounds completely reasonable uh, based on other conventions I've seen start up like that's just that's the time it takes to be able to get space if not everything else I I cannot think of a convention that started in under two years like maybe a year and a half but like not in one year yeah uh yeah well (laughs) announcing anything new in the middle of 2020 is kind of brazen which is pretty great there's that but I mean I, I don't I don't think that the timing is is strange 
if we were living in a world outside of the pandemic, right? Like no. the pandemic is throwing everyone for a loop, but realistically, hopefully 2022 is a time when things will be mostly back on track and there will have long since been a vaccine and people will be healthy again and able to travel. And I mean, they they deserve to be successful. I mean, it's a, a really good endeavor. I'm happy to see it. Uh, we, of course, are talking about Harvest Moon Howlfest. Howlfest. Just, just had a name change, which, uh, first off, I'm very glad that that happened before they printed shirts. I am also very glad the way they handled it and their their new name is great. And uh, for the most part, people seem really happy, which is awesome. And it's it's great. It was a, a really well-resolved situation, I think. I remember the moment they called it FurFest, knowing MFF had to go after that. This happens to them uh, not infrequently. I mean, Harvest Moon is by no means the first uh, organization that's tried to use FurFest for the name of an event. The difference is just that it was so visible so fast yep. that everybody was aware of it right away. And so they knew it as Harvest Moon FurFest, so the, the rebranding couldn't be silent like it might have been if it was another upstart con that only had like a dozen followers or didn't have a Twitter account yet because they were still putting everything together. Like they came out of the gate with social media presence and that's served them really well. But in this case, it's what kind of made things a little more sensitive. I mean, the two things you see is everyone's basically very happy about the name change. Uh, it's It's a much... It's better to have a more distinct name than having one that's crossing over with, especially like the largest convention. Like people will just get, for people who are in furry pretty deeply, I know right away the difference between the conventions, but a lot of people don't know that that kind of thing. And then, I mean, the best analogy would be if they tried to call it like Harvest Moon Anthrocon. Like everybody would be able to look at that and be like, you can't call it that. Like that's the name of something else. And it's the same situation here. But yeah, so Harvest Moon Howlfest is a thing that's happening. Uh, it is a BIPOC-led furry convention, and it's absolutely something that is needed in the fandom. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad the conversation is happening. I think it's it's got to be really difficult to be part of a community like this and look at the leadership and not see anybody who is like you, right? Like... Uh, there is there is BIPOC representation on on boards of directors and on on staff and in in convention chairs sometimes, but you can you don't see it nearly as often as you'd expect to or you should. Part of that is just the way that convention staffing works, where the people who lead it are not necessarily all that visible in general. It's especially important for people to understand that you don't see the board of directors almost ever. They're not the same thing as the staffers or the people on stage in closing ceremonies. They're very different people normally. But I think, you know, I think that's what causes the, the representation issue, right? And this, uh, the leadership trickles down. And so if you don't have like a, a good uh, variety of, of people in the leadership, like chances are you're not going to have a lot of variety in the staffing positions, and as a result, you're not going to have a lot of variety in the, in the guests of honor. I mean, you can still make an attempt to be diverse in that sense, but it's not going to be as organic, I guess. Whenever you have an entrenched system, like you can't be organic anymore. Like organic is what happened. That's where we are today, right? So you have to do exactly. Yeah. You have to do some things. Like people, 
for example, don't necessarily love quotas or that that system. And it's inorganic. And of course it is. Like that's the whole point is we're trying to make a correction. Maybe it's not the best way to do it. That depends. But you you have to do things to fix a system that is entrenched. So you have it in about well, I think three different systems with 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 furry conventions. And you have it on the staffing part which is, I think, that topic came up later. The most obvious is in the dances, you won't hear uh, a lot of music. You'll hear basically like the same kind of music because it's what's gone on forever and it's what people are comfortable with. Uh, and, and so they, they keep going. Um, and then you have it at the, the, like the GOH level some somewhat that's breaking down a little bit and that's kind of been breaking down a little bit the last couple of years but those are the three you see it on now people kind of went in a reverse order of i think how complicated that is to fix they were very fixated on uh the dances having a wider variety and diversity in music especially hip-hop which you just don't hear very much of which is disappointing it is disappointing no i i agree and and i i regret not having done more about that but a lot of that was that in, in convention chair work, you don't respond to things that could be improved. You respond to things that are on fire and so much is always on fire. You just never come back around to it. Um, I, I believe though that, uh, and I, I can't, I'm not a chair anymore, so I'm not really, I'm not plugged in as I used to be, but I believe that is probably the easiest thing to fix. You would expect so. I, I think it, it comes down to, I mean, identifying uh, the DJs within the fandom who uh, excel at that sort of thing and then reaching out to them if they're not applying to DJ at the convention, right? Well, you have to start what the, one of the things people don't know about the, who picks the dance uh, DJs and, and you know all the talent that goes into that is it is very often the domain of one or two people and it goes in a big a big like box that you have no insight into uh, and the process just happens. And as, if you're a chair, like you can completely divorce yourself from that process and it just continually happens. Uh, and you might hear uh, some feedback of saying like, you know, I'd like some diversity in the dance. But what you're actually going to hear because, and this is, this is a community representation issue where we don't have the voices we need. Uh, we're trying to listen better for those voices. Uh, and, and it's just who gets the ear of the convention chair. Um, you'll hear mostly like we need more like top 40 and we need more like 80s and 90s right so like that will kind of sneak in because that's actually the feedback you tend to get you don't get much of like where's hip-hop um and and you should and i i I think that's partly because the people who get the ear of the convention chair are going to be staffers and the staff issue is much more complicated but the whole the, the good part is you can bypass all of that complication, at least as far as the dances are concerned, because that message has been heard quite loudly. So now that that's come to the top is like, this is a major issue uh, that this this type of music is not represented, which is another factor that can create uh, a lot of uncomfortable sort of relationship with going to a convention uh, for uh, people who are used to listening to this as their favorite kind of music. And you go to a dance and you don't get to hear it. You have to hear someone else's favorite kind of music. Yeah. So. In a, where, in, in a place where like people already don't look like you or sound like you, uh, stuff's being appropriated all the time, uh, it's hard when you go into the dances and you don't get to listen to your music. Even though like outside of the dances, everyone listens to your music. So that's it's a, it's weird. 
Yeah, that's that is the really interesting thing is like even the smallest like dissonance like that can make you feel like it's a place where you don't belong. And I get that sometimes, which is weird to say as uh, you know, a gay white man in the furry fandom because I'm probably the most overrepresented. <laughs> but that's funny, right? Uh yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, I mean, I, I've felt that and I, I, I can't speak to like what it's like if, if you're a minority, but I can speak to like, just like looking at, at, you know, a like a tweet that gets a lot of attention. Let's just use that for an example. And everybody's like, oh, this is amazing. And looking at it and be like, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just that little bit of dissonance. It's like, maybe I'm not as close to this, this community as I thought. And to have that just on a constant basis, especially when you're at a con and you're seeing all these faces who don't look like you, I think would be, you know, pretty depressing after a while. Yeah. And I think when you, when we're talking about, about BIPOC experience, the further you get away from white, yeah, the, the more aware you are that you're further away from white, the more the world will tell you yeah. constantly, the more people will say things like, I, I would date you if you know you weren't what you are and people are like well i can't change that <laughs> why did you say that um and that's yeah what a uh, God. i've had several people tell me that's that's a thing they've been told before um and that's great <laughs> God, thanks, thanks for that right? thanks for the notes Jeez. um you know, and you get things like you're you're in a fursuit lounge, you pop your head off, and now you don't look like people expect because you're not right. You know, the mainstream look, darker skinned, and that's that's not a thing people react to super well. Now, I already think people are scary when they take off their fursuit heads because like they're drenched in sweat. <laughs> nobody looks. Nobody. Nobody <laughs> should take off their fursuit head. Right. Ideally, just where we're nobody, getting at. Nobody ever does that. <laughs> Keep it on until you get on the shuttle to go back to the airport. That's yeah, and just never remove it for the rest of your life. Like, Everybody change in the shuttle. It'll be fine. <laughs> that's a healthy message I think to send people is de- dehydrate. I think that's gonna be the one quote that I pull out from this episode. Oh no. Uh, oh no. Really try to really try to push for the the good of conventions right in the future. Right. Oh jeez. <laughs> but it's it's tough. This is a it's a really difficult topic for for me to talk about without sounding super disingenuous. So I'm trying to like tread really lightly and, and I, Oh, the whole fandom apologize. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, it is I, I do want to just offer like a mid episode apology. Oh. If anything I have said or anything I'm say after this is terrible. Please, please tell me after you listen to this and I will apologize to you profusely because it's not intentional. And and I very much want the fandom to be a better place for everybody who is in it, except for Nazis. Uh, you know, I'm not. Well, that sounds like a weird way to say, you know, at that time. But, you know, like anyone who's going to have a discussion about race, anyone out there who's going to have a discussion about race, you're going to trip up. You're going to screw up. You're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to offend people. You're going to make people very antsy. Absolutely. I just don't want people to think like, oh, I get it. Nobody <laughs> does. I... It's too complicated. The people who like are the closest to understanding it, first of all, live it every day. And secondly, study it all the time. And, and third of all, seem to be pretty exhausted at having to constantly talk about it to people who don't understand it, which 
can't can't really blame them for that especially especially in the last month or so because it's come up more than it's ever come up uh which is which is the problem right it just never no one wants to talk about it everyone wants race to not be an issue and the idea of i don't see race i would love it if race wasn't an issue but it it, it's not not an issue right now, unfortunately. So we got some work to it's do. It's the reality we're in. And you have to have these conversations. You just have to have these conversations. We do. One of, I mean, we glanced on it briefly, the idea of, of having more uh, BIPOC guests of honor. Uh, obviously a, a good thing to attempt to do. Uh, I think one of the things we talked about back when we were first talking about this topic was, you know, the risk of that feeling like it's just like a, a crumb that's being thrown to people so they stop complaining about it. One of the big fears I had about, well, now I don't have to have it because like this year is just not going to happen for conventions. <laughs> yeah. But if this was not pandemic year, one of the big fears I would have would be that every convention yeah. would have POC GOHs across the board. Now, that was that's not the bad part. Like that was already in the plan. There were conventions all getting together and saying like this is the year we've got to really focus on these voices and on these these talent. And uh, that's not going to happen obviously now cuz no one is GOH this year. Um, but if you have a year where you have nothing but uh, BIPOC representation in GOH and then the next year we're right back to like cis white male or female. Yeah. Uh, that you've, you've just shown, you've just proven the did whole a, issue. Did a bad job. <laughs> right. And that, that can happen because when you say like, Hey, let's, let's do that this year. Like there's that enthusiasm to override your system, but your system exists. And that's, that, that's the issue. I think it's partially an issue of like, okay, we did it this year and now we can, you know, get the other guests of honor that have been on our lists. Uh, I think there's the the potential issue of like, well, we want to have this person as a guest of honor, but other con had them last year, so we can't have them again right now. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of, I think, excuses that would get thrown around, some of which are are vaguely reasonable, but optically still not great. Um, and I think part of that goes back to not changing, well, changing, but like evolving the the makeup of the people staffing the convention and making these decisions in the first place and and making it so that having this sort of representation is a much more organic thing that just naturally happens because yeah so here's my pitch for the system and it, I, it's hard to speak to this for other conventions i don't know what their systems are i can only speak to what where furry fiesta was and where it was when i left i don't actually know where it is now even but uh and this doesn't even apply to some cons. Like some cons don't have, they've considerably just gotten rid of the whole GOH aspect and seeing it as sort of like, maybe this is elitist, maybe we're raising people above and like they're all pulling from our own community anyway. Why are we uplifting anybody? I, I still see value in, in trying to elevate uh, voices. And I think that's part of what you need to go into this with. You have to have a strategy of what do you want to do with your GOH program? Uh, and, and part of it I think should absolutely be like, no matter what, level of uh like convention you are in the national ranking of, of attendance you should probably focus on local talent right that's your that's your region everyone's everyone's in their own region like we can all pull national uh all we want but focus on your region and, and uplift you know those 
those artists who are who are local to you but you have to have some kind of strategy for this otherwise you're literally just going to go pull the most famous names you can find because you don't know what you're doing um so i'm not saying you have to pull regional that's the strategy but have a strategy have some kind of thing do you want do you want to do you want to feature up-and-coming artists do you want to feature artists who have a hard time having a voice but is uh, their talent has far exceeded their voice and that happens a lot in furry and then like well if you can find a gem and you can elevate them and get their art on your convention and and push them out there like you've done wonders for their career and you've done wonders for your convention it's tough though because it seems like a lot of conventions are driven by finding guests of honor that can you know draw people in and if you have an artist who doesn't have that reach like it almost works against you and it does work against you in that regard because you know, they can retweet and and promote the convention all they want, but if they only have a couple thousand followers and your con has 20,000, like they're not really amplifying your message the way you might want a guest of honor to do it. And I'm not saying that that should be the sole, you know, attribute that you look for in a guest of honor. It absolutely shouldn't. I think what you said is is accurate. Like it can't just be about the reach that they have, but smaller cons especially i think look for that reach as as part of the package just because their own is is so limited yeah and i think that's sort of the crutch that early conventions kind of lean on and i i i would disagree with that strategy generally like if i see uh that a huge name that's been everywhere is headlining your convention uh first of all you've almost overridden your very new convention that has very little branding and you put this giant name on it. Uh, and secondly, like, we're all burnt out on those names. We all know those names. Like, it does add, like, a, a, it almost adds, like, it's trying to add legitimacy, right, to your to your convention saying, look who we can get. But, like, you got them by paying $3,000 or $2,000 or basically buying the flight for somebody. It might be, actually, you might not have paid anything. But uh, you don't need legitimacy. Like, just establish a convention. Pull a GOH that is quality and good and passionate about it. Uh, and get your retweets from people who are passionate about your convention. You don't have to get it from your GOH. Um, our furry GOHs are not great at, at getting conventions out there. I also think GOHs as a concept have probably become increasingly less relevant as conventions and the experience that people expect from them have continued to evolve because how many conventions do you get excited about because of the programming tracks? And guests of honor are kind of ingrained with that like it's great if you get to go to a convention and meet an artist that you've been a huge fan of for a long time but that's not a make or break thing for me when making a decision uh as to whether to go to a convention i i think at, at this point the decision is whether my reg is paid for me or not which means i only go to conventions <laughs> no. that i staff good to know uh yeah uh that's uh, that's not intentional. That's just how it's worked out in the last two years. And I apologize. I I'm that's okay. I'd like to branch out more. It just hasn't, I haven't had an opportunity, especially not this year for some reason. I think a GOH program, if you want it to be useful and have value, you have to make sure the strategy of the GOH program makes sense. And I think this is a great way to bring it back around to like the topic of, of BIPOC GOHs is like, if you want to talk about artists who have the hardest time breaking through uh, in terms of voice and getting content out there, uh, that is that is a community that is in need of like some assistance for getting amplification of their voice. Uh, 
So that's that's a great way to do it. I would say smaller artists, regional artists. Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can boost someone with the GOH. Uh, GOHs are great for flavor of a convention. They're good to like headline or boost tracks that are kind of struggling. If you have a very strong first suit performer, you can get them to boost all the first suit uh, panels quite well. So asking if someone would get excited and go to a con for a GOH, maybe not. But if I was a new first suiter. Uh, and I really wanted some guidance, I might be more excited about programming where they had somebody showing this is what I do. And I thought it may be somebody I've looked up to for a lot of years and I'd like to know how to do what they do. I do think that's a really good way to look at it. Uh, I think small cons struggle with that idea because they see GOHs as a pull for people. Yeah, you're looking for a draw. And that's, yeah, that's where it gets a little weird. Uh, the first thing you have to have is a strategy so you know what you're looking for. The The second thing is you need to, you have to break your process up because oftentimes as, as, that, as that process closes down and collapses to one or two people, then you are bound by the experiences and knowledge of those one or two people. And that's usually what the issue is. And, and I think at TFF and probably some other, I think this is sort of the direction that GOH moved to in general was you have a nominations phase where you try and figure out who do you want to consider. Uh, a committee of people will knock that down to a short list of who they really want to consider. And then there's some kind of selection process. Now I've seen that go from everything from a convention chair having a couple conversations and then making a call of who they think would be really good. Um, and then you're, you're up to the whims of like, how effective was that pick? And does the staff have enough buy-in to go with it? Uh, all the way to uh, making this a very committee-driven thing that ends up in a vote, and then the vote is what selects it. So here's, your, here's where race becomes an issue in all three of those processes. And the very first thing is, uh, I think, the most difficult part, and that is sort of the intake of the names. Um, I know conventions have sort of taken more and more towards asking the public for input, but I don't even think that's necessarily the best direction uh, because that will turn into a popularity contest. And if one of your if one of your drives and motives is to uplift people who don't have a voice, you don't want to uplift like the loudest voices or their biggest fan bases. Um, I think what you almost have to do as a convention is have people on staff who their only role, their only role would be to immerse themselves in furry artists, artwork, community, and just build a massive database and knowledge and familiarity with hundreds and hundreds of names to kind of have that feel for that community. And it's not an easy job to do. Like you might need a couple people to do it. No, it's a very, very specific it's a very particular set of skills. It's a very particular set of skills because what's happening now is when you do a nomination pool, it is the people that everyone knows off the top of their tongue, uh, it tip of their tongue. Uh, it's the it's the people that you're familiar with, and oftentimes that's the people that look like you, um, which isn't like on purpose. It's just people tend to know their friend circles, and the friend circles tend to look like you and and sound like you. Um, I think you. You also have an issue where, and this issue is pervasive, I think, for, for all of, of the BIPOC issues with conventions, where furry some decades ago is much wider than it is today. It's gotten much more diversity than it has uh, when you talk about decades ago. Staffers tend to be older. They tend to be 10, 20 years older than the average furry convention goer. 
Uh, and part of that is because that's when you have like the time and money and comfort and experience to do what conventions need to have done. And if you're older, uh, then you might not be familiar with the incoming younger BIPOC artists. Uh, they will draw differently than you're used to. They're, you're used to like this very like soft, toony, fun style with these kind of bright colors. And a lot of the up and coming artists draw in this very different style. There's a lot of angles, there's a lot of sharpness, there's a different color palette entirely. Um, and it's, it might be uncomfortable if you're an older furry and that's not what you kind of grew up with. Um, and I think if you're immersed in art, like it's just a new trend, you just kind of adapt, you just kind of go with it. Uh, but if yeah, you're, it's not jarring. Yeah, it's not as jarring if you immerse yourself in art and you're kind of watching all the trends. It's actually kind of exciting and fun to see something new and different. Um, but if you don't have that kind of person in your, in your intake side of GOH, then you're going to end up with what people are comfortable with, which is those longer term, older artwork styles. Not necessarily, but generally this is what's happening. That's the thing too, is, is I think a lot of conventions have somebody who manages their, their guests of honor but they expect that person to both manage like hospitality side of thing, the hospitality side of things, as well as, as you know, the nomination side of things. And those are two entirely different skill sets. And again, like the more you try to move this all to fewer people, the more the result is going to reflect what they're comfortable with and what they're familiar with. I, right. And that's, that's why it goes back to being, you know, diversifying the, the staff involved and, and, again getting those decisions to become more ingrained and and you know making sure you've got diversity in all parts of the process and not just one part and that kind of just leads into like i don't know it feels like conventions aren't necessarily always great at explaining how desperately in need of staff they are basically all the time um i think you hear it when you're on the staff of a convention but if you're not, it feels it can feel very closed off. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's part of it. Like you've got you've got people who I mean, you've got this entire group of BIPOC people who who, you know, had the wherewithal to go ahead and start their own convention. And I don't want to say that they never tried to be involved with others. I, I honestly have no idea. But if they didn't, because they didn't feel like there was any opening for them, I would have a hard time blaming them because it just doesn't look like that when you're not already involved. Yeah, I like that we move through these topics in uh, order of difficulty. <laughs> like, I think getting hip hop in a dance is fairly easy compared to fixing your GOH system. And, and, and then fixing your GOH system is something I think you can tinker with internally in staffing. Uh, and, and get a better result uh, with a lot of work, but with some work and uh, process working. But it's, it's when you talk about staffing, now you've hit like the bulwark of complication because now you're actually running into why corporate America's fucked, right? So you, it gets real messy here. Uh, and, and so this is where, right. This is where conventions have the hardest time in general because recruitment is tricky. And there's a number of factors working against you here, not the least of which is the pool of BIPOC applicants is much smaller. Now, that's not just because, like, say, blacks are 10 percent of the American population. Right. Because in furry, I don't even think we're going to get to a 10 percent number because it's just it's less accessible. Um, it definitely was less accessible. It's getting better and better at it. But but there is that discomfort. Uh, you have an issue when you get to the convention level 
there's two different issues going on here, and and one is just pure economics. A convention will cost you a job that requires that you have PTO available to you, or that you have savings available to lose five days of income, or you live right next to the convention, or you can afford a flight and a hotel. It's 500 bucks and PTO. And guess who has those jobs? It's not always BIPOC people, because they tend to be at the harder end of the socioeconomic, like really the whole, the whole like rat race is just not set up in favor of, of BIPOC people. That's the issue that is coming up. That's the big issue that's coming up. Yeah. Uh, and so when we're talking about um, when we're when we're talking about just getting people to conventions, that's already one of the big filters for uh, a lot of BIPOC furries is uh, or just minorities in general is that money becomes a much bigger issue than it will be for somebody who has more opportunities. Um, because of because of where you came from uh, and what you look like, and that's that's America, right? That's just America. That's the whole that's the whole Black Lives Matter movement, right? There is uh, where where's the money going to? Who's who's getting who's getting pushed down and who's benefiting from that? And that's one place it shows up is actually who's able to go to a furry convention. Um, it's not universal. You'll always find exceptions, but in general, when you start going to like big numbers in aggregate that's one of the filters uh, a second filter is that if you feel uncomfortable interacting with the fandom community you're going to take a different route than most people and by that i mean you may be more likely to become an artist uh, or to become a dance performer or to become a first seat performer mm -hmm. those are both routes in which you can be comfortable and interact and feel good about your interactions with people uh, without your race necessarily coming into play or how you speak coming into play or how you look coming into play, right? Because as an artist, people may not know what you look like. Um, they just see your artwork and they appreciate your artwork. Um, as, as a dancer, uh, you can have hip-hop because you just submit hip-hop as like, this is what I'm going to dance to. And it's great and people love it. And then you dance in a fursuit and people love it. Nobody thinks about what do you look like. They just look at the fursuit. So when you have people who are coming in through the fandom in this vector of performance or uh, vending, because most artists will end up making money in the fandom, it's very difficult to ask people who came in this way, hey, would you, would you mind stopping that for a bit and just doing a bunch of free work for a convention? So that, that lowers your pool even more. And I think you see this both with BIPOC and actually I think you see it uh, more commonly with women. Um, when you go into a dealer's den, and this is something I feel stupid not ever thinking about, when you go into a dealer's den, like it's mostly women, right? That's where, that's where most of the women at a furry convention are, is vending. Uh, it's moving to fursuiting as well now. Um, not all, of course, but in general. And, it, and when I was younger, I was like, women must be more artistically talented. Because that's actually one of the narratives you're taught when you're younger. That literally is something they tell you. is like, <laughs> girls are good at creativity and boys are good at math. That's something you're raised with. It's awful. <laughs> right? But I think the reality is art is a comfortable venue to come through. And a lot of the artists I know who are women uh, felt better drawing something and like interacting with the community saying, look what I drew. Um, and having that discussion then they did having just everyone else's discussion of like hi how are you doing because uh, the response is like oh you're you're a girl 
what do I do with this? I, I suppose part of that would be that it, it gives them a, a different focal point. So they're talking about the thing that they've made and not just them as a person. I mean, fursuiting is a, a great example of yep. that because now you're still you, but you're different you over here. And that's the one that people can see instead of real you inside of the suit. Um, and so I can only imagine how freeing it is if you're a person who's so used to being judged based on how you look mm -hmm. and, and on the fact that you're different from everybody around you to like be able to disappear behind that. Yeah. Uh, I can really, yeah, I can absolutely uh, imagine the appeal that that holds. I think there's, there's also this part of, of, you know, I don't want it to sound like it's childish, but there's kind of this, why should I? mentality probably for some people as well because they don't feel well represented at this event and and i think they're probably also thinking like why should it be on their shoulders to to fix that problem right if the event has never and i'm not pointing to any event in particular i'm just this is a hypothetical thing now if that event has never really gone out of its way to show that they're welcome or or that they care about them like I think it's very difficult to turn around and say, you should come help us. And then they'd be like, what have you done for me? Like my experiences here have been fine, but it doesn't feel like I'm particularly like welcome it, it more, more so just tolerated. Right. And if that's how you feel, like it's very hard to turn that into, yeah, I can commit and make a change for the positive. So other people don't feel like this. And there are people that are, that are willing to do that. And if they are, so selfless for making that decision but there are a lot of people i think who probably just don't want to deal with it probably deal with it enough in all other aspects of life that they can't take on this other project and it's hard to to fault them for that i think that that might become more prevalent now because i've seen the narrative move quite a bit and the last month it turned into if conventions don't want us what are we doing for them? I'd, I'd actually never seen that narrative before. I think what was probably happening prior to that is as much less, what have you done for me? And and much more, no one looks like me. I don't know if I'm really welcome. And it's not like I don't, no one's asking and I don't feel comfortable asking. And you, you see this happen probably the most often with uh, security. Like security isn't scary for the most part at furry conventions. They're basically customer service and everyone kind of knows that. But like if you have a serious issue to report, BIPOC people are less likely to report that. Uh, women are also less likely to report it because your security team doesn't look like you and you don't have the best experience with authority figures. Right. Uh, to put that real mildly. So <laughs> you don't necessarily report awful things that happen to you even though like it would probably be fine and it's secure it's just uncomfortable it's already uncomfortable in the first place for anybody to do things like that and and now asking to do it to someone who is you know like a white cis male and you're not any of those things then you have to navigate that as well so that's that's i don't, I don't want to say that it's really about what have you done for me and i don't really feel like i owe you anything uh i think it's it's really more of that's already difficult to ask to be on staff because that no one really knows how that works mm -hmm. uh and and secondly like no one looks like me so i don't know if you really want that um i think there's a number of things i think it's very subtle i think people don't really think about it it's kind of like instinctually uh, it's difficult to do. Yeah. Um, the the biggest uh, when you're getting to staffing, the issue I think is that cons are very bad at recruiting. Like they're awful at recruiting. It's a, it's a it's a thing that you have to go sell 
a job that isn't a great job, right? You're going to get kind of yelled at by the public sometimes. It's pretty good for the most part. Like you don't see like the camaraderie and the family feeling of being in staff that most people experience. Obviously, there's going to be exceptions, mm-hmm. but you have uh, you have a situation where uh, you have to work for free. Most importantly, you're going to lose your convention. Uh, if you sell at a con, now you're losing money. If you derive a lot of validation from fursuit performing and having people be happy that you're out there in fursuit, you're going to lose some of that. Like staffers do that sort of on the side and they're exhausted already. Uh, and usually what you do is you work a con and you don't work another one. We should be clear that, uh, you know, there is a lot of, of con staff positions that do require a lot of time commitment at the con. So depending on how you want to spend your time, it it maybe isn't the practical thing to do, but there are ways to help out without necessarily committing your entire con weekend. Uh, and so I think even just if if it's something you think you might be interested in, if there's a, a local con that you're like, I, I do think I want to help out. And this isn't specifically aimed at anybody except anyone who might just have thought about staffing before you know, reach out because chances are they're looking for somebody and it might be somebody with your skill set and it might be a thing that you can do that doesn't require you to give up your entire weekend. Yeah. And that's a conversation you'd have with your, I want to say recruiter, but like, I don't know if not that many conventions, how they're getting there, they're getting there to where there is a recruiter and there is actually like an HR intake system that thinks about all those things. I, I think having that like staff management person who can speak to the, the, you know, the people that are needed and the skills that are needed uh, and and have at least some idea of what kind of time commitment uh, is a really important part of the system to make it more approachable for people. But yeah, that's it. That's kind of like bridging into an entirely separate discussion. Yeah, sort of is, but it also sort of isn't because part of having that HR intake system is they would know we're also looking for a diversity of voices and that's important to us. And if you could get that message out. Yeah. I just mean the idea of, of, of getting staff on cons as a whole. I I mean, it's not specifically an issue with, with, uh, you know, a lack of diversity. I mean, that's obviously a, a, a problem. Uh, but also just that cons are, you know, hungry for, for people regardless and, and constantly are. And I think a lot of people just don't really realize it. Yeah. You don't really want your staffers to have bad experiences or else they go tell people like I had bad experiences. I don't want to do that again. Like you see that every day on Twitter. Um, I've also, I've had a lot of people who are happy with, with what they do. And it's almost always like how many hours did I have to work? How pressure was it? Was it, am I in registration? There's not enough people. Like that's a perennial issue at conventions. Yeah. And part of it is just finding the right fit for the people who want to help. Because I think some people just like end up in these situations because they don't necessarily know what they want to do. And then they end up in a position that they don't like, uh, because they didn't really know what anything entailed. And and so being able to, to match people up better so they can, you know, better allocate their time and, and enjoy the time that they're spending working so it's not just one constant ball of stress is important. And that goes into recruitment because you need somebody to say like, this, yeah, is, absolutely. this is who you talk to, who can tell you about the open positions, who can tell you what the expectations are, what you can talk about when negotiate. Like I want to go to these panels or I want to have this day open. Uh, how many hours you should expect to work, uh, all of that. You can have that discussion before you're even talking to a department lead because department leads will tell you different stories, which are sometimes better because they'll, they'll be more specifically be able to tell you what the job is. But uh, your HR person can tell you a whole lot more if there is that intake system. I really appreciated 
that TFF has an HR person. That was a really great experience when I was when I was uh, looking to join the staff, and it's the first time I'd interacted with anyone in that capacity at a con. Uh, but like at that time, it was just like. Oh my God! This is so obvious. Every con should do this. The the issue when you don't have an HR department or an HR person or whatever you want to call it uh, is what all conventions use at the at the inception until you have that function is what I call the friends and family program, and this is the basis of why there's racial diversity issues in conventions. It's it's not because conventions are going out of their way to like dodge BIPOC people. No, they're just. They're bringing in the people they know, and the people they know happen to be people who are very similar to who's already there. And the reason I know the conventions aren't dodging BIPOC people is because Furry Fiesta turned down so few applicants, and we never got to, like, race. We didn't care. Like, if you were willing to work, the desperation for having staffers is so high that you're usually only revoking people for... Either they only want to do a department that you manage to actually fill so highly, and that's the only thing they want to do, or uh, you have uh, court records that we can find, uh, and that's that's. <laughs> yeah. Or or you're telling us I want to work three hours on Saturday, in which case like please volunteer, like don't don't waste our time on the staffing system if you're going to give us less than like 15 hours. But the issue I think falls to the friends and family program mm-hmm. like it your staffers are friends of friends of friends and weirdly when when you are in a certain community you don't leave that community to have friends <laughs> so like how difficult is it on the friends and family program to get to a person of color like in texas if it's hispanic not that hard like there's a lot of hispanics here so it's like it's not unusual to have a hispanic friend uh and this is this is a real like and and especially like people like me i basically have the white hall pass i call it the white hall pass where like people don't really look at me and think like this is a mexican <laughs> they just kind of like whatever you're very dark you've been outside a lot <laughs> and then they'll kind of move from there yeah so like i have the experience where like cops are a little tense around me and then i talk a little bit and they're fine um which is Great for me, uh, but unfair for a lot of other people. So uh, how that relates to staffing is it wasn't hard. Well, it was hard for me to get on staff, but I don't think it was uh, a darker skin issue. I think it was just like nobody had the time to figure out who should be on staff. It was a very young convention at the time. Yeah. Um, And until you have that function and you're just pulling, I didn't know staffers. I just moved to Dallas. Right. And until you know those, the, the people who can get you in, then you're stuck and then what happens is if conventions start that way then for four or five years as you're on the friends and family program your core staffers are all like this inner community interlocked set of people which also creates a bunch of drama because like if everyone is basically like they all they all know everybody like a small town you basically built a small town now with three and four years of that like everyone's at each other's throats so it's one of it's not a get out of that program as soon as you can and pull in people from the outside uh it's a little uncomfortable because now you have staffers you just met it also means that when one staffer leaves uh if their departure is dramatic then you've lost a chunk (laughs) of people and not just one person you have to pick sides Uh, yeah because there's this this like solidarity question right we're getting a little more off track than i'd like and we're at about an hour and i'm not looking forward to editing this so much so i'm going to (laughs) 
I'm going to say that we had a, a very good conversation and I appreciate it, especially your insights into staffing um, because you are you have a lot more experience with regards to that. Um, and I think we're going to call it an episode. Yeah, I do. I do want to add that we barely touched on, I think, a lot of this. It's just there's so much to cover oh my on God, all yeah. of it that this is not like solutions at this point. This is like a couple like tips and why I think it happens. Uh, there's a lot more to say about it, and I hope to have these conversations with people uh, as as time goes on because this is a solution that is complicated. I think I have an answer uh, that's not necessarily going to fit every convention without a bunch of customization uh, and or at least get people thinking. Like at the very least. So if you run a convention, uh, reach out don't, to don't Pat do that. Hyena, don't do that. And he <laughs> will uh, fix everything for we'll you. Leave you on read. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a guarantee. I just have ideas that I'm sure other people have had. But hundred percent guaranteed to fix all the problems. That's <laughs> that's path, baby. That's that's your catchphrase. No, it is. That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> You are not to do that again. All right. Well, we probably should end the show because otherwise I'm going to. So this has been Animal Noises. I have been and continue to be uh, Ringer or at Mamuma Matches on Twitter. And I'm still Path Hyena, which that's where I am on Twitter so far. So just send him a DM and he will he will help you out. All right. We'll see. We'll see you next time. And uh... <laughs> in theory. Oh no. All right, thank you for listening, and goodbye. Bye.